This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Culinary Adventures with Secret Recipes. That's the subtitle. The main title, My Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes. And joining me from Florida in the United States of America is Chef Wolfgang Hanau. Thank you, sir, for joining me today, sir. Hello, Jay. How are you? Excellent. Please start uh, asking me questions. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm uh, fascinated by your book. You're over 550 pages, and uh, for most people who would see this on the shelf, they would think, well, another recipe book. It's not really a recipe book in, unless you would uh, I- include a recipe for life because your first chapter gives some fascinating insight. You were born in Prussia, and yet in your book you mention the importance of faith in your, in your life. Uh, share with my listeners a little of your history with where you were born, and uh, some other things about your life that maybe give you a foundation for your book. I'm very happy to be very um, uh, much uh, follower of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord, and um, I surrender everything what I do in obedience to Jesus Christ and ask him to take charge of it. So I start off with my book, uh, describing when I was a child, and um, I love to sit on the one tree near our house, and I looked at the leaves, and they were breathing and bringing peace to me and harmony and happiness to my mind, and um, which transformed uh, my mind to renewing of my mind. There was uh, many times running as a boy, running through the fields of wheat and barley and rye in East Prussia, and Mama, my mother, was always watching and um, constantly concerned about happiness and health, both physically and spiritually. She would follow me carefully with her eyes as I ran into the sunshine, blue skies, and golden fields in front of us. And um, I couldn't think of anything more than being happy and enjoying the life as a child uh, right to my adulthood. And uh, throughout my life, as I mentioned before, Jesus Christ was and is always next to me. I surrendered to him in obedience, leaving all the consequences to him. And... uh, I believe also it's very important that we learn how to wait for things to happen and not being anxious. And um, I like to follow there the, the words of the um, uh, prophet Isaiah 64:4, as it says, God acts upon those who wait for him. This is one of my philosophies and my wisdoms in life I learned. It's a it's a beautiful philosophy for those uh, who are listening and maybe people of faith. This is uh, an inspiration by itself because you uh, were born, if I might, uh, might observe this, prior to World War II and uh, grew up as a child in East Prussia. Your mother was also uh, an accomplished individual in the music field. Is that correct? Yes, my mother was an opera singer, and so my father was also involved in the music. He was a conductor of the Philharmonic Orchestra in Tilsit, in East Prussia. And uh, besides, my mother was a very famous painter. She still was to the last um, uh, time where she lived and grew and lived in, in America, among others in Alaska and in Long Island in New York and in New Orleans and in Palm Beach and in Palm Springs, where she visited me when I owned the restaurant there. And she had art exhibitions there, and she always had more orders than she really could handle. And I have in my own house, I have many of her paintings. And um, I enjoy the painting, and I like the, enjoy the music, in particular classical music, as I enjoy other painters. For instance, one of my good friends is Franz Hals, who is the famous Austrian painter who was in charge of... Um, uh, and uh, authorized to paint the Opera House in Vienna and the Lipizzaner Horses. I have a whole collection of his paintings in my home, too. So my mother was uh, very artistically managed. She grew up in Germany, but she started in Italy and in Germany, 
and later on she practiced her art in all over Europe and in America. And you grew up to have an interest or fascination with cooking and baking and became a world-class chef because you have worked and uh, practiced your craft in over 26 countries worldwide, including in the subtitle Berlin, Paris, London, New York, Casablanca, Zurich. Where did that interest in cooking and being a chef come from? Okay, this is a description of the most beautiful life from my childhood to adult. The word beautiful means there's an exciting story and a tasty dish for everyone in this book of my reading and uh, travel adventures. Um, I can tell you how, unlike my book is uh, with similar books, it sets my recipes apart from other books as they are most beautiful dishes prepared and tasted traveling through 26 counties and uh, uh, provide only dishes which I particularly liked and which I particularly enjoyed eating with, uh, in, in other restaurants and resorts. And it not only elaborates on seafood or meats or any category of vegetarian or soups or baked goods, but all types of food. This is one more thing which is set to society from other cookbooks. Where did, where did you begin studying your skills as a chef? I studied uh, outside Munich in, in a little city called Starnberg. And it was um, after the war, after the Second World War, when there were very little uh, to do, very little to do, and uh, very few jobs available. And there my mother met this uh, owner of this uh, wonderful restaurant and, uh, and uh, bakery outside Munich in Starnberg, and I had the most wonderful relationship with these people. I was, like, I was brought up like a child in that family. The name was Pop, P-O-P-P, and he later on became the mayor of Munich. And uh, it was a wonderful life there. I went to school in Munich, culinary school. I graduated from the Culinary Academy in Munich with a diploma of the city of Munich, which made me one of the three uh, most honored students in the city of Munich, and uh, which is still today one of my great references which I can give. You have, uh, you have mentioned in your title that you have secret recipes. Most chefs and bakers like to keep those close at hand. Why did you choose to share them with the world? Well, I tell you what it is. I believe that I want to share everything which I know and which I have learned in this world. For instance, I was uh, one of the most beautiful uh, life stories I have, uh, which was about uh, four or five years ago, way after Europe, when I um, struggled with the, um, uh, with the decision, should I want to have another job or should I want to give of myself and uh, help others of what I know? And God took care of me. He sent me to a place called Oasis. Oasis is a... Um, a um, agency for the homeless and the underprivileged here in West Palm Beach. And I started there as a culinary director and gave uh, cooking lessons to those who could not afford any other lessons or could not afford to go to school. They came from other countries, from Central America, South America, or wherever they came from. And I was able to teach what I knew. And therefore, this became the most valuable uh, source of information, the most valuable a place I ever worked at. This was at Oasis because I was uh, able to work what I enjoyed by cooking, at the same time giving of myself to helping others. A question that I have, because I have observed chefs and bakers and people in the industry, to me it's a very difficult, tiring existence to be a chef. Was that anything that you had to overcome, or how did you manage the energy needed to become an exceptional chef? Well, it started early in my age. My mother was an excellent chef. As a matter of fact, I write one story where she made every Sunday morning, she made something like German apple pancakes. Right. And they were not fried, they were baked in an oven, they were wonderful, and they became so famous in our little village where we grew up that all the children automatically on Sunday would come to our house because they knew there was something which she really liked and enjoyed, and my mother loved to share with them. So I started cooking with my mother, and then my grandmother was also an established chef. Uh, she's not a chef as such, but uh, very uh, good history in cooking, too, dishes, but not only East Prussian dishes, but dishes from anywhere in the world, because she also grew up internationally. And um, so it was only natural for me 
to grow up and pursue this cooking anymore, and particularly they had the opportunity, and I found the opportunity to travel throughout the world. And um, so I uh, traveled, I started after East Prussia, I traveled to Bavaria, which was out of necessity because the Russians conquered um, uh, East Prussia. And that's a story by itself because we were invaded there with these um, uh, Russians, which came, actually were Cossacks, they called them Cossacks. Right. They had swords on their saddles and were rather wild-looking people. But anyway, so we escaped. Um, and being very uh, fortunate that the mayor of the big city of Tilsit, where my father was a conductor at the orchestra, by the way, he called my mother up and he said, there's a Red Cross uh, train coming to your little village, and I make him stop, and they will have four tickets. This was uh, my mother, the children, and our children, my grandmother, and they will take you into the inside of Germany so you can escape the Russians. So then, in other words, from East Prussia, I went to Bavaria, and then after I graduated from my apprenticeship in Munich, I went to Switzerland, to England, to France, to America, the Caribbean, the Canary Islands, to Africa, the Orient, Southern Europe, and back to the United States, living in California, Michigan, New York, and in Florida. Phenomenal. So this was part of my travel. And altogether, I traveled through 26 countries and so many different places and different cities. And matter of fact, the outside of my book, uh, reflects my travels with the skylines of many of the cities I lived in. The uh, recipes that you've included, is there a cultural recipe or a style of cooking besides the uh, uh, the European style of uh, classic uh, cooking? Is there a, a style or a type of cooking that you discovered that you were not aware of but you have come to love? Yeah, this is the Mexican cooking. I recently learned here in America. I love Mexican cuisine, and I have many Mexican recipes included in my cookbook. And now, more particular, my brother lives in Mexico, and I share many recipes with him, original recipes. And this is all my recipes. They come not only from different countries, but also from different chefs, and the original recipes as they are cooked in those countries. And this, again, sets them aside from other uh, cookbooks, because they might um, have recipes which everybody knows, and uh, not unusual combinations of in particular, I talk about herbs and spices, which are used in many countries, uh, totally different from other countries. For instance, if you go and live in Morocco, the Moroccan herbs is a whole uh, story by itself. And I was uh, fortunate enough to travel through the Sahara Desert, where I bought uh, at the um, Bedouin villages. They lived in tents in the Sahara Desert. Right. Uh, most fabulous uh, herbs which you don't know even anywhere in the world. And so I used, I got used to those herbs and use them today in cooking even. Can, can, there, can these herbs that are a little bit unusual for the American taste, for example, or for maybe Great Britain, uh, those in different parts of the world, can they find them locally or are, they, are there other yeah. substitutes? I, I, I made sure that all my recipes are very uncomplicated. And it should be, my writing should take special tasks and special care to make uh, it a personal book, pleasantly ambling, and that it should be fun to reading and to cook these recipes. They're very uncomplicated. And you should be able to get all of this somewhere in America uh, if, if you're willing to go and look for it. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing which you cannot get in, this, in these recipes here in America. Well, your book is inspirational not only from a personal standpoint because you have a fascinating history, but also from the, uh, the cooking and the chefing standpoint. How would you introduce this book to someone in a couple of sentences? How would you get them interested in uh, making this a part of their library? Okay, I would say... Let me think how I would best describe it in a, in a short, in a short say. Anyway, it is written by a chef, born and educated in East Prussia, to learn to love good cooking from an early age. It was only natural for me to go on to become a world-class chef. In my book, Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes, uh, I write about culinary adventures with secret recipes, sharing the secret recipe I learned over decades-long career at some of the world's most exclusive restaurants, luxury hotels and resorts, as well as recipes for the reader's family and friends, like German warm potato salad, the Allenstein barbecue recipe, wow. Bernays sauce, rainforest, acai berry cookies, 
Amstel Light, Portobello, Gorgonzola, Burgess, Golden Apple, Cheddar, Pancakes, Apple Jam Filled, Cookies and Apricot Glazed Mushrooms over Mixed Baby Greens. Besides sharing these recipes, my Travel Adventure Secrets recipes serve as my memoir and include stories about uh, camelback rides in the Sahara Desert, cruises on luxury ocean liners, and meeting with celebrities at culinary destinations as well as simply escaping the ordinary routines of life. Besides your fascinating career and illustrious, you have some wonderful introductions from world-class chefs and uh, people who have been in management in some key key businesses. You have uh, just stated earlier in the interview that the most exciting thing that you have done with all of your accomplishments is what you're involved in now. Is that also correct? That's all correct. But now, at this time, I'm consulting, and I can be contacted anywhere from anywhere in the world to travel to any restaurant, to any luxury hotel or simple restaurant, set them up a menu, and work with them to prepare for an elaborate party. For instance, I received once an invitation from the King of Morocco mm. to, uh, to cater a, um, a special uh, dinner for celebrities he had invited from all over Europe who flew specially in, and he asked me to cater this. And uh, I tried to be hands-on myself involved in this. I met the most fascinating people. As I can mention, I met um, Aristotle Onassis in my lifetime. I met with Maria Callas, a famous opera singer. Yes. I met with Sir Vincent Churchill in London. I met with Sir Montgomery of Alamea in Gstaad as a ski-jumping affair. So I met the most fascinating people, and I can be contacted through my publisher, uh, which is easily available, to uh, travel anywhere in the world and uh, cater, uh, make uh, fabulous feasts uh, to anybody's desire. Chef, I have a grandson who had an interest in becoming a chef at some point. Is it a difficult thing to achieve? How did you achieve, or how would they achieve what you have accomplished? It is very simple. You need some um, imagination and being creative how to go about Set up your mind that you want to travel and you want to see the world and you want to work as a chef and learn different things. This is what my ambition was. So what I did is I wrote simply to different newspapers and asked them to send me a copy of the newspaper and I wrote to different advertising of hotels and restaurants and says, I'm a young chef willing to learn. I would like to come and work in your place. This was my first job I got at that time in Switzerland in a little town called Chinsnachbart, which was the hottest uh, south of spring terms in, in Switzerland and in Europe. And this is where I met many, many interesting people and many famous chefs. And I received other orders and other offers from, uh, from the Dorsters Hotel in London, from the Plaza Atene in Paris, where people came and they loved what I was cooking. And uh, once you start the ball rolling, it rolls by itself. Give yourself a chance and do it. And I encourage anybody who is young and willing to travel and to learn to follow this uh, example. If they have any questions, they can call me up and I tell them how to go about it. I would be very happy to help them. Fascinating. That's great advice, not only for those who are interested in the culinary field, but also probably any career. It, it has some wonderful foundation. Thank you again for sharing that. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. The title of the book, again, is My Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes. My guest has been Chef Wolfgang Hanau. Chef, where can my listeners get a, a, a copy of this? You mentioned iUniverse, and I think Amazon carries it as well, correct? Yeah. Well, Amazon right now carries it. Barnes & Noble carries it. It can be bought through my publisher, uh, iUniverse. Uh, and if you want, I can give his phone number. It's 800 Two eight eight four six seven seven, and uh, from myself personally too, uh, I'm available at my uh, uh, email or through my phone number, which is five six one eight three five three seven nine eight. And the reason it's secret is very simple. These recipes have never been published before. That's the first time I publish these recipes. That's why I call them secret because they're secret to anybody else, except to you if you buy the book. <laughs> uh, well, that's a good teaser. They, they, they sometimes refer to that as a cliffhanger, uh, something that will get people's interest and hopefully get them involved. Again, a fascinating book. It just covers a lot more than just secret recipes and culinary adventures. It does cover your life story as well, and a beautiful story it is, uh, your adventures through Paris.
Paris, uh, Berlin, London, New York, Casablanca, and 26 other major countries in the world that uh, should be fascinating to, to the reader. The title, again, is My Travel Adventures and Secret Recipes. My guest has been Chef Wolfgang Hanau. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thank My you so pleasure. Much. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff. And find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Satan's Stronghold. Not a religious novel, I don't think, but my author... Robert Gallant is joining me from Michigan. Bob, welcome to the program, sir. Great. I really appreciate you inviting me to talk about my novel. This is the first novel that I wrote, and uh, having lived in Louisiana for 28 years, it takes place in the swamps of Louisiana. And yet you're in Michigan, and and this deals with a game warden and some other interesting characters. Uh, Where do they fit in, and what's the general underlying theme of your your novel? Would you describe it as a mystery or an action thriller? How would you best describe it? I would say a suspenseful action thriller. But I also always have two motives. One, I want it to be an exciting, credible thriller, but I also want to make the person, the reader, get insights as to a unique area, whether it's uh, an area like the Louisiana swamps or the Cajun culture that is so dominant there, so that when they're through, they say, wow, I know more about that issue or that culture or that locale than I ever did before, and I'm really glad to have learned that. Uh, your background is in the scientific area, or at least in research. Uh, that has a lot of detail involved in it, in uh, in that uh, arena. You have retired. Your late wife, Margie, gave you some great advice on writing a, an action thriller. What were the two points that she mentioned to you about females in specific that uh, you might integrate into your stories? Yes, she was a great reader of mystery novels, particularly by women. And so when I finished my first pass on Satan's Stronghold, I gave it to her and said, would you read this and critique it? And she came back and she said, if you're going to have a strong woman in the story, do not make her dependent upon some manly hero. Well, boo. She has to have the capability <laughs> significantly influenced the story on her own. And your so your, your main I, your main so, female character is oh, Ch- Chesney Barrett. Is that is that the name of your female character in this? Uh... Yes, Chesney Barrett. And I invented Chesney Barrett. And after I did, I said, "Oh, this opens doors to different characters, different situations, some changes in the storyline. Fantastic! It was the best single advice." I had ever received after reading dozens and dozens of books on how how to write and so forth. But she wasn't through. She also said, an artist paints pictures with a brush. A writer paints pictures with words. You have to make it possible for your reader to visualize the scenery, the situation, the people, 
everything about it. And so I said, okay, I do a lot of research. So anyway, so let me do this. And when I did it, I realized, wow, it does slow down the flow of the story, but it should because it allows the reader to walk side by side with the characters and go through the same experience that the characters are going through. That was fabulous. Fabulous advice. Pieces of advice were fundamentally important to me. I probably should have made Margie a co-author. Well, this is this is a, a, again a novel that you have managed to condense, at least from my perspective, into around two hundred pages. Now, did you work off of an outline, or how did you get these characters to integrate into the storyline? I, I really started off the the novel with saying to myself. What if a drug dealer came in and built a methamphetamines drug factory somewhere in this vast swamp where you have deserted coastlines, you have meandering bayous, you have watery forests? How in the world would you find where they had that thing hidden and how they were transporting the product out all over the United States? And this is a challenge that Travis Weld, who was the leader of a clandestine government team that combats drug dealers and terrorists, had. And so he found Chesney Barrett, and she was doing environmental research studies in the Chaplaya Basin. So she had an excuse to be there. And one reason she needed an excuse was already a game warden and an undercover agent had been murdered for going in a section of the swamp that they weren't supposed to be in. So he said, help me find this factory. And, of course, that threw Chesney into an entirely different world that she wasn't familiar with, where deception is the norm and sex is a weapon, and uh, if you make a mistake, you're going to get killed. Why would she do this? The reason Chesney was willing to do it was because two years before that, she was the collegiate swimming champion of the United of, of College. She completely dominated the pre-Olympic trials in the U.S. She was going to be headed for gold medals in the Olympics, and on her way home, a drug dealer escaping from the, the police smashed into her car, killed her mother, and put her in the hospital. So she watched the Olympics from the hospital. Wow. Now, she fully recovered physically, but she has inwardly just frustration and an anger and a despair over what was taken away from her. So she said, okay, this is not only revenge. Most of all, I'm going to do this because I do not want this drug dealer to do to anybody what that drug dealer did to me. So she jumped into the middle of it, and she had to go through confrontations. She had to outmaneuver potential traps. She had to deal with constantly, I make a mistake and I'm dead. But she was very good at that. She's very quick on her feet. She's a beautiful six-foot blonde, uh, so she went in and seduced the plantation owner who owned huge amount of property in the swamp, and Travis Weld was convinced that the foreman at this plantation was the leader of the drug group. So by seducing him, he said, oh, you can go anywhere in my uh, swamp. So when she went out immediately, she got challenged, And she essentially said, I'm an environmentalist. I'm here to protect and improve and save your swamp. Mm. Don't tell me I shouldn't be in here and just ignored them. Well, that's a problem for them uh, because, hey, their boss, the plantation owner, was trying to woo her to marry him. Mm. So they were a little 
they reluctant to kill her. Right. Now, is it is this the of the action scenes, because you have described this as an action thriller, is this uh, where the action takes place? I mean, is there a lot of, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll use the word guns and, and uh, shoot 'em ups or how would you describe the action that you've created? Yes. She is constantly facing confrontations. In one case, this guy is standing in the boat pointing a shotgun at her saying, uh, you shouldn't have come here. And instead of, oh, my God, what am I going to do? She jumped them, took them into the water (laughs) and was in the midst of drowning them because in the water, she's better than an alligator. And uh, unfortunately, along came the, the foreman and he stopped her from drowning them. But now he has a dilemma because she's saying, that guy was trying to rape me. I'm going back and I'm going to tell the plantation owner to get rid of the And he's, okay, is she just a really overall environmentalist or is she a BEA person? Because if I kill her, I'm going to be in trouble with my boss. Yeah. So she was brilliant at uh, being able to talk her way out of seemingly impossible situations. Well, you took that early advice from your spouse and uh, certainly integrated into the character that you have described for us. Is there anything about the... How long did it take, Bob, to to complete this? Because it sounds like there are a lot of twists and turns that are are a part of this, and also the character development must have taken some thought. Yeah, I spent about two years because uh, initially I came up with another reason for her to be willing to uh, undertake this dangerous thing, and I found out, well, I used up most of the first four chapters explaining that, and I want to get this action started right away. So then I reworked, and that's when I came up with the thing of, okay, uh, she went through this terrible experience, uh, and that's why she's angry and willing to take it. But also then, part of the beauty of that is this becomes a journey for Chesney. She is trying to come back from the pain and frustration of having her dreams destroyed to how does she get herself back like she used to be, where her intense competitive spirit was so powerful that she never lost in a swimming pool. She never let herself lose in a swimming pool. And now she's having to do the same thing out in the middle of the, the swamps with men who are debating whether to kill her, and she's going to win. In- so Incredible. Now, you, you have... The journey is great for her because it restored that competitive spirit in her. You, you have a very imaginative mind. This is not your first novel. You have, I mean, you have written several novels. What is it that, that keeps you inspired to be creative and to the discipline of being an author? I like to tell a story. I've always loved to write. In fact, in during my 40 years in technology, I published over 50 scientific journal articles. I published three books that became standards in the industry. I published a book on how to be a successful manager. But my love was always, I want to write fiction. So mm. after retiring, that's when I went to, to work on that. And I love going in and figuring out how can you create a story that people would say, wow, this is not only interesting, but I'm learning something from this. It's really fascinating. Suddenly I learned things about, I never knew the Louisiana swamps were like that. Uh, I never understood a lot of these things about the Cajun culture. It's fascinating to know. So, so I love the learning curve that I go through because I make myself do a lot of research. Even though I'd lived in Louisiana for 28 years, I spent over a year of additional researching to make sure I had everything right. And it took me two years to write it, probably because, of course, I had to tear up the first pass. <laughs> and and get the, it straightened out. The the the, the primary, uh, I guess you would call it a character, is the Achifalaya Achifa, oh, Basin. 
Uh, is that uh, was that a, an area that you had to research, or were you familiar with some of its intricacies in Louisiana? I was very familiar with the intricacies because I've always been fascinated by wow, this vast, fantastic swampland, and uh, it's just an environmental beautiful environmental thing and and i'm a very strong environmentalist but i was determined i gotta understand even more about it in fact one of the things that really pleased me a friend that i knew who he's cajun he grew up in louisiana he went to louisiana state university he fished regularly and after he read the novel he said i learned things about the swamp i didn't know in fact I got a fishing guide to take me out into this one section you talked about because I'd never been there. And sure enough, it's just like you described. So oh. I said, victory. Yeah, great commendation. You have uh, completed this novel. Uh, do you feel like there might be an interest in producing a movie out of the action and the adventure that you have uh, envisioned? I've tried very hard to convince them that, hey, this would be a, a great m- movie. Uh, it has a very powerful woman, and I've now written four, uh, three sequels to this. Uh, there are now four novels featuring Chesney Barrett working for this uh, undercover uh, government agent on battling terrorists and battling uh, <clears throat> drug dealers. Uh, and it, to me, it would be a great series on either TV or in a movie, but so far I haven't convinced anybody yet to do that. Well, it's young yet, or early yet. It's, it still could happen. Uh, you have created a an environment where the novel and the action should be a page-turner for anyone that loves action-adventure. This is an interesting approach to to writing, and uh, I certainly am uh, delighted to visit with you and talk about the inspiration behind it. The title, again, is Satan's Stronghold, a novel by Robert Gallant. Uh, Bob, where do my listeners get a copy of your your novels? It's uh, available on Amazon.com. would be the the best place for most people to go. Sure. And uh, it's uh, the publisher is iUniverse, and a person can also go to iUniverse and get it. But Amazon uh, is probably the ideal place to go. Excellent. Well, let's spell your last name so people can find you. It's Robert Gallant, G-A-L-L-A-N-T. If they do a search under your name, they can find this and any other publications that come out in the future. Uh, best of luck with this. I hope it does well for you, and I uh, would be first in line to see it in movie form. If it ever comes out, let me know about it. Great. Thank you very much. We appreciate this opportunity to talk to you. I get really excited. I apologize <laughs> if I'm too excited writing this novel. I love Chesney Barrett. Uh, and I've, I've now four, four novels with Chesney Barrett as the driving force of them. And uh, a number of those, I already had the plots with other people figured out, but I just figured Chesney Barrett is too good to, you know, I got to stick with her for a while. Well, excellent. And uh, you don't need to apologize for being excited. I appreciate your enthusiasm. I think it really sets it off and should get people interested in reading their copy of Satan's Stronghold. Again, my guest, Robert Gallant. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you very much, Jay. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When your focus is to lose weight or maintain your present weight, exercising effectively to burn the most calories is crucial. You want to give yourself every advantage to burn as many calories as possible. One good tip is to do your strength training exercises standing up so you can keep your heart rate up Another tip is to perform multi-joint exercises when you can. For example, as you're doing a forward lunge, add bicep curls while you're coming up from the lunge. Another example is to execute a wide squat. And as you're coming up from the squat, perform a shoulder press. By doing these multi-joint exercises, you're putting more demands on your body, keeping your heart rate up, and working more muscles at the same time. 
The goal is to burn the most calories during that workout. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success, and the author is Paulette Ashlin, and Paulette joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Paulette. Hi, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us, Paulette, and becoming a leader, very challenging, and yet, as you point out in your book, it's within many, many people, but they need to learn to, well, I guess, learn the principles and work at it. It just takes work to become a leader. It does, especially in terms of behavior, because many leaders, especially many of my clients, are extremely successful, and the leadership DNA is there in them. So it's just a matter of being aware of successful leadership behaviors. And I coach them to understand that behavior is something they can control because they can't control genetics, they can't control IQ or situations or the economy or world events or even stock prices, but they can control their behavior. So it's a matter of their choosing to be a good leader. They can choose to be an even better leader. And really, it's really that simple. Great leaders, as you point out, are really great performers, even we might call them great actors. Uh, Before we get into explaining that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and why you wrote the book? I've worked in large corporate settings, mid-sized corporate settings, and small companies. I've been a cost center. I've been the head of a P&L. And as I've interacted with wonderful, incredible leaders around the world, and I've had the privilege of coaching some of them, the one thing that struck me about these great leaders is that they all have a common behavior. They have common behaviors that drive their success. And that's why the book is called Leading the Way, Behaviors That Drive Success. And so I wanted to describe those fundamental behaviors of great leaders. Well, let's talk about becoming a great leader. Why do you say you have to be a great actor or performer to be a great leader? Uh, Great question. Uh, The book begins by describing and defining the behavioral model to leadership. If, If you've had any psychology in your background, you know that behaviorism talks about rewards in in terms of behaviors and the fact that people can change their behaviors if they're motivated enough to change if they get those rewards, if they know how to change. So we begin with describing the behavioral model, and we end the book by describing that the fact that leaders are great performers. And that is, I mean, if you think about your daily life, when you walk into the office every day and you're not wearing your heart on your sleeve or you're not acting in a way that, you really, that, desc- that describes your mood, you're acting. Whenever you're trying to influence employees, boards of directors, customers, you're acting if you're trying to influence them. So we describe common behaviors and define the behaviors in operational terms that, that revolve around self-awareness, self-control, empathy, humility, integrity, personal stewardship and communication, and even global intelligence. So it just takes motivation. We've got to be motivated enough to change, and often change is something really tough to swallow for a lot of people to change. Exactly. First of all, if they have to change something, they need to know what it is, and that's why the first chapter in the book is about self-awareness. And there are descriptors and there are ways, methodologies for finding out what behaviors need to be enhanced, which ones need to be kept, and which ones need to be changed. Then there's also the motivation to change. I think you you got that. What exactly is motivating different people to change and working with that? And then the third component is knowing how to change. Very often people know they have to. They see the writing on the wall. They're not quite sure why people are responding in certain ways to them, but they don't know what to do about it. They don't know how to change. And so your book walks through all these different principles self-awareness, self-control, empathy, humility, integrity, personal stewardship, communication, global intelligence, acting the part. It covers just about every aspect of what to change. 
almost every, I mean, I'm sure you could come up with many, many more, but those are common behaviors and characteristics, attributes that my colleagues and I have pointed to over the years. We've concluded that behavior is really an element, a defining element of success and failure in a leadership. So, for example, I've known some wonderful and very intelligent, well-intended leaders derail in their careers because of some of their behaviors. And conversely, I've known some not very intelligent, not very well-intended people rise to leadership positions because of behaviors. So the book is about how to take on this principle of, of behaviorism and use it to one's benefit in a very positive way, to influence people, to have people follow you over a hill, not knowing what's on the other side. And that aspect of self-control, that is probably one of the disciplines that many of us, I think about every person would remember a time when they didn't keep their self-control and all the negative consequences. Oh, absolutely. Especially many, many leaders have risen to leadership levels because they've been drivers, they've been very energetic, results-oriented, to the detriment of some relationships. And they do lose some self-control. So there are tips in the book on how to regain self-control. But on the other hand, we also talk about neither end of the spectrum is really good. You don't want to have too little self-control, and you don't want to have too much self-control, because guess what happens when you have too much self-control, or you exhibit too much self-control? People seem robotic. They're not human. So we talk about a delicate balance, all to influence people to follow your lead. You talk about in that self-control the three-second rule. Why don't you give us a little tidbit on that? (laughs) (laughs) The three-second rule is very much like breathing and counting to ten, only it takes less time. It's three seconds. Basically, it's whenever you recognize a trigger that's going to perpetuate a kind of behavior that you don't want to manifest, count to three, whether it's shooting out that destructive email, whether it's responding negatively to somebody or just losing your cool, count to three. It's easier than ten. It sounds really simple, but it's, it's harder than you think. You've had over a decade of executive coaching. As you look over those many years, do you sense what you're advocating here? Is this for everyone, no matter what their level of executive leadership that they're in? Yes. If people are already leaders, whether they're CEOs or presidents, the book will validate some of their constructive and great behavior. If someone aspires to a leadership position, it'll teach them how to behave to become a leader. So it really is for anyone, entry-level people all the way up to CEO. So this is a step-by-step process. Uh, These principles that you have in your book, you're saying that we need to get to be good performers of these principles. That's exactly right. Well, first of all, there there are some assumptions made. The assumptions are that you know what you're doing, that you're smart enough, that you are competent and perform well technically in your job. The book is about behaving in a way that supports all of those competencies. And it also builds on other competency-based leadership principles. You know, once you know your strengths and weaknesses, what to do about them. So it makes those assumptions, and it's a step beyond. It actually tells people how to behave themselves into leadership and actually stay in leadership. So you mentioned acting One thing that did strike me in the decade-long coaching world is the fact that great leaders are great performers. They know how to project their voices, how to control their body language in front of crowds and even one-on-one. They know how to motivate people and inspire people. And some of the best leaders are very charismatic. They're not necessarily extroverts. Many great leaders are introverts, but they are great performers. They can compensate for the introversion by being great actors, and that's how they motivate people. So it's much more than just understanding your strengths and weaknesses. Exactly. Understanding them is the first step. The second step is knowing how the strengths and weaknesses are being perceived by other people. And the third step is knowing how to change perceptions through behavior. It's very similar to what actors do. They understand their roles, and they're very self-aware 
they know how they're projecting to an audience. So there are lots of analogies to acting. Integrity, the importance of it. Please help us understand. Oh, yes. When I do 360-degree interviews on behalf of my coaching clients, a 360-degree interview is called a 360 because I interview people all around a person. So it's a 360-degree angle. I interview subordinates, superiors, and peers. One of the questions I always ask is, please rate this person on integrity, and how do you define integrity? Because integrity is the most misinterpreted trait among leaders from my experience because the definition of integrity changes around the world, even within a corporation. There are subcultures. Everybody agrees that integrity is an essential attribute of great leadership. The interpretation of integrity changes, so that's why I have a chapter in the book that defines globally understood behaviors of integrity. For example, telling the truth, not throwing somebody under the bus, and so on and so forth. So there's an acknowledgement that integrity is very important in leadership, but then in the book we describe actual behaviors that have been defined by people that define great leaders. And what do you mean by global intelligence? Global intelligence is the awareness of what's going on beyond your immediate environment. It encompasses the awareness and the understanding of different groups of people, whether locally, outside your company, or globally. And that's because the world has become incredibly small. And from our experience and from my coaching, the best leaders know what's going on around the the world so that they can relate to their constituents, the employees in their company, their boards of directors, their shareholders. They're very much aware. Now, they don't have to have a deep dive in everything that's going on. That's impossible. You don't have enough time to figure out what's going on everywhere around the world all the time. But they're globally aware and they're intelligent enough to have a very good conversation and to be able to relate to people following them over that proverbial hill. You quote Vince Lombardi, leaders aren't born, they're made and made through (laughs) hard work. And that's what you've been instructing us on, Paulette. Tell us how to get your book, Leading the Way. It is available at iUniverse.com and also on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. 